0: Well, good morning. Uh, if you weren't here last week, um, we went off order a little bit. Uh, thank you, for Pastor John, for preaching for me last week. I was under the weather. Um, and so today we'll be preaching. I'll be talking about the uh, church in Philadelphia, okay? And speaking of order, I'm just going off track for a little bit. I know there's some in here that love order, that you've got to have things in order, okay? Okay. Now, you can admit that last week when Pastor John came up here and said he'd be preaching Laodicea instead of me preaching Philadelphia, you were kind of distressed. Go ahead. Admit it. I'm the only one, really? Oh, okay. I, I was a little off, you know. I'm like, ah, I don't know about that, John. You sure? you will preach another sermon and then, you know, nah, it worked out, though. So good to have everybody here. Uh, this morning, um, we're going to take a look at the six of the seven letters to the churches. And this letter that we're going to be talking on to the Church of Philadelphia, it's the one that gives hope. Here, Jesus just showers this church with little power, with so much hope. And um, I'm telling you, as I was doing my study for this, Um, It was while I was sick and everything, and it just, it rejuvenated me. It really, really did uh, as I read and as I studied the word of God, as I studied this particular part of scripture, seeing the love that Jesus had for his faithful, it was just an encouragement to my soul. One writer puts it this way, the church is not a place of people with no weaknesses. It is a fellowship of those who are aware of their weaknesses and long for the strength and grace of God to fill their lives. It is a spiritual hospital for those who know that they are sick and that they are needy. That's us. I know I'm sick. I know I'm crazy. I know without the Lord where I would be. That's what we're talking about here, okay? The church in Philadelphia, they understood this, and they are an example to us today of the church that was faithful. Despite despite their weakness, their lack of power, they brought glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ by their faithful walk with him, by their obedience to his word. And because of that, this is the only, only the second church out of the seven that receives condemnation oh, I'm sorry that receives no condemnation but they receive commendation from the Lord. I want to begin again by reminding you uh, how this letter to the Re- uh, the book of Revelation, how it begins and I want to go back to um, chapter one verses one to three very quickly the revelation of Jesus Christ, for the time is near. You pray with me. Father, as we now examine the letter to the Church of Philadelphia, I pray those words will encourage, sober, humble, captivate, Lord, and excite us in light of our whole study of the seven churches. Heavenly Father, meet with us here this morning, individually and as a corporate body. And may it be that we, Redeemer Fellowship come to realize that though we may also be considered a church with little power, with little influence, may our hearts and our spirits be awakened to the fact that we can be that church that is viewed by you as faithful, abiding, persevering, standing firm in the gospel, and spreading the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ wherever we may go. Amen. Amen. Uh, Turn with me, uh, go ahead and turn to um, Revelations 3, 7 through 13. I'm not going to be reading it um, from from the offset. I'm going to be reading it as I go along. But in this passage, we find the sixth letter or many letters that was dictated by Jesus to John in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. So Revelations chapter 2 and 3 contain these many letters that we've been going over to the churches this one is addressed to the Church of Philadelphia, the original Philadelphia. Okay? This Philadelphia was established by the, by the Pergamum king, Eumenes II, in 189 B.C. He named it in honor of his brother, Attalus II, who was called Philadelphus, which means he who loves his brother. This biblical city was located about 28 miles southeast of the city of Sardis. It was the youngest of the seven cities whose churches are addressed in this letter. The city was destroyed by an earthquake in 17 AD, along with Sardis and other cities in the proximity. Most of the others recovered rather quickly from the disaster, but the aftershocks, they continued to affect Philadelphia for quite a number of years, with the result being that people had to flee the city repeatedly, so you would have an earthquake. And aftershocks, people would leave, they'd go for a little while, come back, same thing, leave, go for a while, come back. That's what was happening. Tiberius Caesar helped Philadelphia to recover from the earthquake, and out of gratitude, the city changed its name to Neo Caesarea, the new Caesar, and it bore that name for a while. I mention these facts because we're going to see that they have a bearing on the promises to the church in this letter a little bit later. This church in Philadelphia is unique among the seven churches because it is the only church the Lord registers no complaint against. Go back, look at it. The only church that the Lord registers no complaint against. This is the church that delights Christ. Out of the seven churches, only this church and the churches of Smyrna receive unqualified praise and approval. They deeply please the Lord. So once again, using the basic structure that we find in all of these letters, let's listen to what Jesus tells the disciples in Philadelphia and then consider what message Jesus is sending to us now through the message being given to Philadelphia. So let's start with the first point of our passage, a description of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Listen to how Jesus introduces himself in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Just as in the other letters, Jesus chooses to introduce himself in this letter in a way that has particular relevance to the Philadelphian church. So there's a uniqueness to this description, but in more ways than one. This description is the only one of the seven letters not to be drawn from chapter 1. In the other letters, our Lord uses symbols to describe himself that come from the vision John had of him. That was like what was recorded in chapter 1. In this letter, however, Jesus makes no reference at all to that vision. He uses other titles to describe himself, okay? We have in that single verse a 4 fourfold description of Christ. He is the Holy One. This is a distinctive attribute only given to God, Yahweh. He is the Holy One. He is set apart. He's perfect. He's pure. Secondly, he's true. The connotation being that Jesus is the true Messiah. He's the true Savior. And we can also view it as he is fully trustworthy in all times and every way. Our Lord is trustworthy because he is the true Savior, the true Messiah. He has the key of David. And I'm going to park here for a little bit. Okay. Now, we know keys and locks and doors are assigned. Well, I don't know if all of us know this, but they're a sign of power and official authority, okay? Jesus holds the key not to just Philadelphia, but to the house of David, as we will see. That is a reference to an incident recorded in the 22nd chapter of Isaiah, and I'm not going to read it all. In the days of Hezekiah the king, there was a courtier. Today, that would be like the chief of staff, okay, uh, in charge of the palace, whose name was Shebna. He had been caught in a personal scam run for his own benefit. And as a result, God says in a very unusual, very descriptive way, this thing about him, the Lord said, and I'm paraphrasing, he would take him and whirl him around. Just picture a discus thrower. When, he, when he's getting ready to throw the discus, he's whirling around, okay, to hurl him into a far country. That's in Isaiah twenty-two eighteen. It was a prediction that he would be sent to Babylon. He would be replaced by a godly man named Eliakim, of whom God said in Isaiah twenty-two twenty-two, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Does that sound vaguely familiar to you guys? The language sounds familiar because it is prophetical of Jesus Christ. Eliakim, here Eliakim is prophetically understood to be a type of Christ. Eliakim is compared with the famous messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. The key, the government of the house of Judah, is set on Eliakim's shoulder in in Isaiah 22, uh, uh, verse 22. Compared with the government will rest upon his shoulder in chapter 9 of Isaiah, speaking of Jesus Christ. Like him will become a throne of glory to his father's house. In uh, verse 23 of chapter 22, prophetically compared with Isaiah 9, 7. Of the increase of this government and of peace, there will be no end. And the throne of David, and this is where it is, the, on the throne of David, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. Speaking of Christ, Eliakim was appointed to his royal position by God as would the the coming Messiah, as we see in chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. Remember, God told David that he would establish his kingdom and his son would reign on the throne forever. Jesus is the son who takes the seat on the eternal throne the point point, the point is this whereas Eliakim ruled over Israel at one time now Christ of whom Eliakim like I said is a prophetic type rules over the church the true Israel now and forevermore fourthly our Lord refers back to that passage in Isaiah and applies it to himself okay He is the one who opens and shuts doors. He's the one. He's the only one. He's sovereign over all. He's powerful, able to open and shut anything he pleases. His will cannot be opposed. He governs events in history here on earth. He will open some doors and he will close other doors. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. No human power can contravene, conflict with what our God determines. No human power can conflict with what our God determines. No matter what you see going on and no matter how you feel about it, remember that. No human power can contravene what God has determined. God has determined. Which takes me now to, um, let me see, but to understand what the phrase means in context, we need to look at verse 8 through 10, okay? So that takes us to my second point. We have a diagnosis of the believer in verses um, 8 through 10 of chapter 3. So let's look at it, beginning with verse 8. I know your works, he says. Behold, I have set before you, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to keep this thing here so I don't go off track. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan Jesus makes it clear to his readers that he is perfectly acquainted with who, the what, the how, the why of this church and its ministry. He knows them. He knows what they, that they have but little power. That's not an insult or a rebuke. It's an acknowledgment that they have very little influence in the culture. And I think Pastor John mentioned that last week with the, with the animus of the Jews around them. He knows their works and right away we see a connection to the phrase key of David from verse, uh, verse 7. Christ gives them power to remain in his kingdom in spite of being persecuted, in spite of the fact that they have little strength. More than this, he has put before them an open door. The phrase open door can have two references, okay? They can, it can refer to the door of salvation, okay? And it can refer to the opportunities to preach the gospel, to witness for Christ, as we see in Acts and in Corinthians. Follow me in verse 8. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Notice how the context helps make sense of the key and the door uh, language that we're hearing here. This church, this church that that Christ is talking to they are clearly suffering they're in it okay they are surrounded by people who hate them despise them their own people okay they are being persecuted and like the church in Smyrna the church in Philadelphia is being persecuted by Jews in that city and just like in his message to the uh, Smyrna church Jesus refers to these Jews As the synagogue of Satan. Strong language. The synagogue of Satan. Since they have unwittingly aligned themselves with the devil specifically. And that's why Christ says that. Because they have aligned themselves with the enemy. And he knows that. And he calls them out. You are a synagogue of Satan. Okay? Positioning themselves against God and God's people. So how were the Jews persecuting the disciples? Well, if some of these Christians were converted Jews, then there could, be, there could have been some sort of pressure and slander from friends and family. We, some of us, may know that kind of slander. You get saved, you know, and your family just disses you and they talk about you and so forth. You understand that. They also may have been accused by the Jews before the Romans as being unfriendly to the emperor since they confessed this man, Jesus, as Lord of all, and would not worship the Caesar. But given the language about the open door and the key, it's also safe to assume that these Jews were attempting to discourage these people, okay? Discourage them from proclaiming the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, okay? How many of us fight that fight? You know when we have people coming against us discouraging us and we know that we're supposed to be light and salt but the surrounding circumstances just it presses in and you want to shrink and Christ here is saying don't shrink away proclaim my name okay um, it seems that they were attempting to shut the door on these Christians declaring they were barred. They were prohibited from entering into the favor of God. They were claiming that they were, this synagogue of Satan, Christ calls them, they were proclaiming that they were the true Israel, that they were God's people, even though Christ is calling them out already, okay? Remember that Jesus said to many of the Jewish leaders in Matthew 23:13, he says, but woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you shut the same Greek word of shutting the door. It's the same word here. For you shut the kingdom of heaven and people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. You are a stumbling block. Is basically what Christ is saying. But remember that Jesus is uh, what Jesus is stating here. Clearly, these Christians have very little social capital. Okay. They're they're there, but they have very little clout, political clout. They have no influence. They are in some sense powerless against the forces which oppose them. But look how he is reassuring them. Take note of this. I have the key of David. I am the king of this kingdom. Christ is reminding us today. He is the king of this kingdom. I say who is in and who is out. I have set before you an open door. They cannot shut it. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. Redeemer Fellowship, Christ is speaking to us. Abide. They will learn that I have loved you. And because they have patiently endured in the face of this suffering, particularly in witnessing of Christ, Jesus assures the Philadelphians that they will be protected from a more intense and larger scale time of suffering that is coming. He will keep them from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world. We must understand that it's God's power that determines our future. Our salvation and commendation from him is not based, it's not based on the great and good things that we do for Jesus, okay? Because Jesus has already done the greatest thing. He's already done it. All he's asking of us is to humbly keep his powerful word. Abide in his word. Keep his word. He'll do the rest. Don't fret. Keep abiding. You're going to hear me repeat that. Keep (laughs) abiding. And please note that Christ is speaking here primarily of spiritual rather than physical protection. Uh, Because nowhere in Revelation are believers promised immunity from physical suffering. We're not promised that. But rather, Scripture tells us clearly, we are to expect suffering. If you came into this faith not expecting suffering, I'll say, welcome. (laughs) Because we are to expect suffering. When suffering comes, it is our reliance on Jesus in the midst of suffering that gives us a strong confidence in him. It's that suffering that causes us to run. It should. It should cause you to run to Christ. It's that suffering that makes you realize, I need something greater because I cannot make it on my own, okay? You may never know. If Corey Tim Boone put it this way. You may never know that Jesus is all you need. I think one of the other guys said this as well, but I'm going to say it again, okay? You may never know that Jesus is all you need, Until Jesus is all you have. Okay. Which takes us to our next point. Our third point. Directive action. We're directed to action. And look at how verse 11 continues this encouragement and this directive to action. They have kept his word. Verse 8. And not denied his name. And patiently endured. In verse 10. The call of Jesus is simply to continue the race. Continue the race. Don't stop. Okay. Verse eleven. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. Remember, Jesus has already told three of the five churches we studied that we will come, that He will come to them, but that was in the context of judgment, okay? Here, the context is most certainly, it's one of comfort, okay? Jesus is comforting this church. You may, you may recall Jesus similarly encouraged the faithful in Ty- Ty- Tyra. <laughs> Only hold fast what you have until I come, he said in chapter 2, verse 25. Hold on to what you have so that no one no one will take your crown. As the, times, as the times get harder and it's even more difficult to be a Christian, I know you can relate to what I'm saying here, as hostilities increase and the world becomes more and more secular and casts aside the trappings of Christianity and all that it had formerly practiced, then we must be careful that we do not give up and go along with worldly attitudes and worldly pursuits. We have got to guard our hearts and our minds so carefully because the world's attitude, as a matter of fact, me and Rob mentioned this in in the bathroom earlier, the world's attitudes so quickly, so quickly can influence us and change us. And affect us and then we catch ourselves it's like wow who is this guy be careful with that um let me make sure that I didn't um, miss anything we must not allow the desire for status for prestige for fame a beautiful home and the things the world lusts for to become central to our thinking hold on to what you have says Jesus because there is a danger that someone may take your crown. That is not a reference to poss- a loss of salvation. Jesus is not talking about a loss of salvation here. Jesus is not infusing doubt, okay? What it is speaking of is your opportunity for service in the eternal ages. That is the reward which is offered, the opportunity for even greater service. And J.I. Packer puts it this way He says, The Christian's reward is not directly earned. It is not a payment proportionate to services rendered. It is a father's gift of generous grace to his children for exceeding anything they deserve. Also, we must understand that the promised reward is not something of a different nature tacked on to the activity being rewarded. No, it is rather... The activity itself, communion with God and worship and service, it is the consummation. Communion with God and worship and service, that's the consummation. Whatever we might feel or think about God's involvement in our suffering, we cannot say He is distant and that He's distracted. God is in the midst. I need you to hear me this morning, church. God is in the midst. God is not distracted. He knows everything individually that's going on in our lives. And I've sat down and tried to think about these things, and it, it, it gives you a headache. It gives you a headache, so don't go there, okay? What, mm. He is poised and prepared to help to be there for his church to see us through, okay? He has and will intervene in everything. His purposes will not be delayed. And that's an encouragement. What an encouragement to the Philadelphian church that was, okay? Knowing that Christ was present in their suffering. No, They knew it. They didn't doubt it because Christ would not have been delighted in this church. Had they doubted him. They were standing firm. In the promise of God's word. Okay. Don't let anyone discourage you. Okay. Don't let anyone discourage you. By encouraging you to drop out of the race. The crown. The winner's wreath. Is yours. Keep on running. Run for us. Run. Keep running. Okay. So cheat church keep his word with patient endurance because his reward he rewards those who do, who do he does he rewards us and our final point is the declaration of reward and as if there wasn't already enough encouragement in this, in this little short passage okay of the struggling church Jesus heaps on the promises in verse 12 and 13 listen to this the one who conquers I will make him a pillar and the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When Pastor John first began this series, he reminded us always to take this letter, this book, this book of Revelation as a whole. If you remember, he said that. You may not remember he said that, but I did because I went back and listened. Okay, What Christ now gives to the one who overcomes are really four aspects of the promise. So when we see this book as a whole, we realize that near the end of this book, God will tell these disciples even more about his temple, about his city, the new Jerusalem. And God's possession of them will be sealed Forever, and they bear not, and they bear not only the name of God, but the name of God's city, the, the and Jesus' new name. Later on in the vision, John would record this sight, if you remember, in Revelations 14.1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him a hundred and forty four thousand who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads there are two promises given to the ones who overcome who hold on to what they have first Jesus says I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and never again will he leave it like other cities to which Jesus sent his messages Philadelphia was a religious city a strategically located trade town in Asia, which stood between Rome and in the Eastern world. There were so many temples in the city and the other cities that the other cities called Philadelphia the Little Athens because of its many gods and idols. But though it was filled with idolatry, though the idolatry was all around them, they were right there in the smack of it. They remained faithful to Jesus. What an awesome grace. Think about how difficult that is. What an awesome, awesome grace God bestowed on these people. Okay? Just pick up on the customs associated with the temple. Uh, William Barclay explains it this way. When a person had served the state well. Hold on one second. I need some water. My mouth is sticking. When a person had served the state well, when he had left behind a noble record as a magistrate or as a public benefactor or as a priest, the memorial with which the city gave to him was to erect a pillar on the temples with his name inscribed upon it. Philadelphia honored its illustrious sons by putting their names on the pillar of its temples, so that all who came to worship might see and remember. Jesus says to the disciples of that city, I will make the one who overcomes a pillar in the temple of my God. I will make the one who overcomes a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar is a symbol of strength. It's a symbol of permanence. Our Lord is promising those who hold fast and are faithful that he will honor them by making them pillars In the temple, pillars that last, that are permanent in the temple of the living God. And he grants overcomers the triple honor of bearing the name of his God, the name of the city of his God, and the new name. Jesus will give every Christian a permanent place in the structure of God's kingdom. God has a place, a position, settled every one of us here I don't know about you but that excites me okay I I just don't want to jump up and down here because I hurt my back okay Uh, Jesus will give every Christian a permanent place in the structure of God's kingdom the faithful are not only included in the kingdom of God in some general sense they are people of prominence in God's kingdom they are pillars Our future in Christ, your future in Christ is incredibly solid. It's it's solid. It's a pillar. And it's an unending future. Never shall he go out of it, Jesus says. No one can come in and undo the work of Jesus in your life. No one can undo it. He will reign forever. No one will vote him out. And he will never resign. His people will live forever in the presence of God as the people of God for the glory of God. For the glory of God. But there's more. He said, I will write on him the name of my God. That means we will belong to God. We'll be marked as God's people renamed for His glory, in the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which comes down from my God, but out, my God out of heaven. Remember, I told you earlier that Philadelphia and Sardis were leveled by an earthquake, and Tiberius rebuilt the city of Philadelphia, changed its name to Neo Caesarea, the new, the new Caesar. Well, know this, and and John emphasized the genius. Well, of course he's God, so he's definitely genius of the way Jesus puts out these letters, okay? He says, <clears throat> Jesus knows that history, and he picks up on it here. He says, I will write on, your, on you the name of the city of my God. Literary genius. Okay, I will write on you the name of the city of my God, the new city, the new Jerusalem, which John describes in Revelations 21 and 22. We will have permanent, permanent citizenship in heaven and its new kingdom with God. Okay, church, Redeemer, brothers and sisters, whatever you are going through today, right now, in the present. Step out. Think about this. Think on this. Dwell on this promise that we have. This suffering is temporary. It's, it's temporary. Abide, endure, persevere. And my my own new name, a new name in the Bible means you have a new status, okay, a new function. What is the new name? We're not sure, but whatever it is, the name above, we know it's the name above every other name, right? The name before whom everyone will bow down. It's the name of Jesus. The Redeemer, the Savior, the Lamb who was slain, the Lion of Judah, the Christ, the true one, the Holy One, God himself. And maybe there's other names so glorious that we won't even know them till we see them face to face, okay? But whatever the name is, it'll be written on us, marking us as an enduring people, claimed by him for all times. So in conclusion... As we think about this beautiful message that Christ had for Philadelphia, from Jesus up to, to these ancient Philadelphians, I think we're reminded that as we were, just like we were by the letter to Smyrna, that Christ wants to help us through this season, our seasons of suffering. He desires to help us. He wants to help us. We are to look at these tests as opportunities of faithfulness for faithfulness, just as we're reminded in this letter to Smyrna. Consider this: um, I mean, just as we're reminded in the letter to Smyrna, not in this letter to Smyrna. Consider this: Number one, present feelings of the, present feelings of duress can never change future blessings of access. When you are stuck in the midst of a struggle and turmoil and trials, when you are feeling beat up and are despairing, in those times, Jesus is reminding you, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I have opened a door that can never be shut. No person or problem can close it. Peter mentioned this very thing when he said, for in this way, in, in, in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 11, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Number two, present feelings from actual animosity can never change future blessings of affirmed affections that we have from Christ. When we are being slandered and marginalized or rebuffed and rejected in whatever way, it's tempting to forget the love of Jesus in the face of a world that is loveless. There's, there's, sometimes it seems like there's no love, you know. It is tempting to forget who is for us when everything and everyone seems to be against us. But just as Jesus reminded the Philadelphian believers, he reminds us, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. The world will learn sooner or later that God Almighty, the sovereign, loves us because we have believed, we have abided, okay? Three, present feelings of serious danger can never change future blessings of certain delight. When you are in the midst of the season of suffering, is it a fight? It is a fight to feel safe. Dangers seem very real. From concerns about our health and relationships to fears about our mental and emotional and spiritual well being, trials can feel so dangerous. And in this season, I think you understand that the emotional, the, the, the physical, just the strain of this season in our lives. It's, it's real. But Jesus reminds us that our endurance now will mean protection later from the suffering that will come as a result of God's judgment. You don't want to deal with that suffering. You don't want to be in that one. All of us will suffer, but it's either suffer for Jesus now or suffer without Jesus then. And even if we find ourselves in the midst of that hour of trial, the prayer of Jesus from John 17 will be answered where he says, Holy Father, keep. This is the same word we've been talking about. Keep in Revelation 3.10. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them from out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And don't forget that description of what God has promised for the conqueror, the overcomer. We will be firmly established as pillars, as those marked as citizens of the heavenly city. And no one can take that from us. Nobody can take that from you. Okay, it is certain it is it is as immovable as we will be in his presence. But our patient endurance now and our realized blessings, then both come from the same source. Don't ever forget this. It is a grace of God, not of your own doing, not of my own doing. Whatever it is that you're able to endure, it is a grace of God. In and of ourselves, we don't have the strength to persevere, and therefore we should never earn, earn, we will never earn such blessings. The Philadelphians had little power, but they persevered. How? Because another power was at work within them. The death of Jesus long ago means life for us now. Power to live today and power to live forever. In every case, it is the power to live for God. It is what It is what God has blessed us with, this grace, this power to live with him. If you're struggling this morning, is that what you want? Do you want that power? Ask him. Ask him for that power, okay? Do the only thing that you are able to do and believe that he's able to grant you that power trust him today he has loved us so let's start living and trusting because it is true it is wonderful it is real our lord loves us and he's ah he's asking us persevere persevere church let's pray heavenly father we thank you for the challenge that is ours Preserved through these centuries and made known to us today, Father, that there is a door open to us which no man, no man can shut. Oh, God, help us to be faithful and to walk through the door of opportunity and take advantage of every opportunity you've given us to share the good news of salvation, this blessing, this wonderful grace that you've given us. God, help us to be faithful. And if there is one here today who has never trusted you, Lord, we ask that you, for you to work in their hearts and lives with such convicting power that they will submit to Christ's salvation. We ask this in the mighty and precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.